Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we talk about the enduring appeal of audio storytelling with AM640 Program Director Amanda Capito on the heels of her TED Talk tribute to the topic. Actress Shayla Brown joins me to tell us all about appearing alongside a truly dynamite cast in Sarah Pauly's latest film, the Academy Award-nominated Women Talking, and how Pauly created a role just for the 19-year-old after seeing her audition. As we approach one year since Russia's further invasion of Ukraine, we find out what one top military strategist out there thinks about what we've witnessed so far and what could lie ahead in that conflict. But first, discount retail apps are banking on Canadian consumers looking for big bargains in these times of high prices and high inflation. We find out about a new one that's just arrived in Canada after becoming the most downloaded app in the U.S. over the fall. First up, tonight, you can't buy pancakes on this app. That much I know. You can buy just about everything else, though. We'll get to that in just a second, which is this just prevalence now of these shopping apps that you can sign up for. Um, The good news today that we got, Canada's annual inflation rate dropped below 6% for the first time since early last year. The consumer price index rose 5.9% in January from a year earlier, down from 6.3% in December. So just 5.9%. Still pretty high, but not great. Food is still way up. Uh, But other than that, things are dropping just a little bit. But high inflation has had everyone looking for a bargain, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many apps I've signed up for, grocery store apps, food apps, restaurant apps. And now it's the big online retail apps that seem to be making a splash. And one of the biggest ones of late is uh, linked to one of China's top retailers. It's quickly become the most downloaded app in the U.S., surpassing Amazon and Walmart. It's called Temu, T-E-M-U. It's based in Boston, at least the American version is. It's the same owner as a Chinese social commerce giant called Pinduoduo, and it made its Super Bowl debut with a commercial. Have a listen. I like it. Yep, it's mine. The prices blow my mind. I feel so rich. Oh, yeah. Download the Timu app and shop like a billionaire. Yeah, well, you get their slogan, right? Shop like a billionaire because the prices, and I've been on it a few times already, you know, wireless headphones, 948, adjustable table lamp, 548. You could buy a harp for 153 bucks. I don't know if that's a good deal, but it sounds like a good deal. Um, and it's just one of many. There are quite a few of these out there now. Wish, I guess, is one of them. Shine, I believe, is another one that's really popular. But Timu, since its rollout in the US in September, the app has been downloaded 24 million times, racking up more than 11 million monthly users, active users. And it made its Canadian debut in the last few days. It's now in Canada. You can go have a look at it if you want. The big issue, of course, is uh, how do they make their money? And B, is it too cheap to be good? I mean, that really is the, the bottom line, right? And joining me now with more on this is Craig Patterson. He's CEO and publisher of Retail Insider. Craig, thank you. Thank you for having me. So tell me about this app. It is it's it's been it was outpacing Walmart. I mean, I guess Walmart and others have mature. They've been around for a long time, but it was racking up a lot of downloads of late in the U.S. And now it's here. 
It sure was, yeah. And it's interesting that it's come to Canada here as well. Uh, I was having a look at this, and uh, this is quite fascinating, but I did a little bit more research into Timu, and uh, I don't think these prices are going to last forever because essentially the Chinese parent company is subsidizing uh, the incredibly low prices as well as the free shipping, which it's just it's impossible to make money based on the prices that are on that website right now. A loss leader, they call that, isn't it? I mean, I'm not a retail person, but I believe that's called a loss leader, is it not? It's a loss company. I mean, it's beyond <laughs> it's the entire, entire. You know, I mean, that harp sounds kind of interesting. I might pick one of those up before uh, the price yeah. increases. <laughs> yeah, I had I had a good look through the site. So Pingduoduo is the is the uh, Chinese company, and they started off, I guess, as a bulk retailer. So you'd get your friends together and buy, I don't know, a box of something, and brought the whole price down. But it seems like, at least if in the short term, they're really going after a North American consumer base, hoping that these low prices will draw people in and that they'll stay there. Yeah, exactly. They want to grow, uh, gain market share. Um, it's called customer acquisition. So what they're trying to do is acquire customers who will become loyal to their platform and uh, will, you know, hopefully keep shopping there. Um, you pointed out earlier, I mean, I bought things in years past on Wish and, and I, or, or Wish.com. I'm not sure which one it's called, but um, it, often they, they don't look like the photos. You, you get something of a really low quality, and I'm just wondering if this is going to be the case with uh, with Timu. Uh, I don't know. I haven't ordered anything. We just talked about this a couple yeah. days ago for the first time. <laughs> Yeah, it's. Just, I mean, it just arrived. As far as I know, just my, my wife actually put it out to me. It just sort of popped up over the last... Uh, that We knew they were coming to Canada, but uh, it's just happened in the last few days. What is this? I mean, low prices, I guess, is is the selling point here. There's free shipping as well. I know there's some... I mean, on all these sites, you kind of have to read the fine print. But uh, I guess just these really low prices and the free shipping for the time being is the selling point. It is. It's mind-blowing how low the prices are. I was looking at some of the stuff there, and, and I thought, there's no way they're making money. Another thing that I've noticed is I didn't necessarily see counterfeits of designer goods, but if you look at the tote bag, which is on the website, which sells for, you know, like 18 bucks, um, it's a knockoff, essentially, of Marc Jacobs' tote bag. It's the same thing. The only thing it doesn't have is by Marc Jacobs at the bottom. And right. I was going through the website. Uh, I know designer brands quite well because of the work that I do. And I was going through there thinking, you know, this is uh, Prada. This is uh, Gucci. Uh, they, they had a bag that looked like Gucci. It looked like a very poor quality knockoff. But nevertheless, uh, these are inspired by those brands. China's cracked down on actual counterfeits being sold online. But these are inspired goods. And, and that tote bag uh, would definitely confuse me if a woman was walking down the street with it. I might assume it was Marc Jacobs, and they retail for about $250, I believe, at Hudson's Bay. And 18, 18 there. How is it? I mean, my understanding is pretty limited of how this all works, but they're essentially cutting out. It's like it's direct, you know, it's direct to manufacturer sort of thing, right? They're cutting out all the middle people here and selling it to Mm -hmm. you basically outside the factory door, as far as I can tell. Yeah, yeah, it's drop shipping is what they call it. So they've got, and I think most of the uh, suppliers are in China. I was looking into it again, and there's people out there that have left reviews on about Timu, mainly in the United States because it's so new in Canada. We don't really have this here yet. But uh, people were saying, don't bother. It took way longer than expected to get the package. Uh, I've encountered this with other websites in the past. Early on in the pandemic, I got bored, as many people I'm sure did, because we're stuck indoors and there was lockdowns. And so I ordered various things uh, through different uh, apps, websites, even through Instagram. And just to, just to try it out, I, you know, I wasn't spending money on anything else. <laughs> and uh, yeah. uh, I, I was often disappointed with what I got. Yeah, it, it could be very hit or miss, right? I think you have to kind of figure out what it is that you need. One of the things that's selling like hotcakes, as far as I can tell, is the Lenovo headphones, because they look a lot like, I mean, they look like 
a much higher priced version of other brands. And Lenovo is a relatively well-known brand. Uh, I guess those are the kinds of things that they put out there to try to attract people to buy stuff. I would think so, or at least the suppliers that they have were able to sell these at that subsidized discount. Again, I'm assuming that the uh, uh, Chinese parent company has, because uh, uh, I think Timu itself sets the prices. So I think these prices are set quite low. It's going to be hard for these vendors to make a profit, but this being subsidized through the giant parent Chinese parent company. Again, the question is for how long, because that company is not going to want to lose money forever. And and there's no way, again, like I was saying, that Timu is making money right now. That Super Bowl commercial alone was probably, what, $20 million uh, on top yeah. of everything else? Well, that, that was a big surprise, I think, that there they were, because I think people under, knew of the app, uh, certainly in the States, because it's been downloaded quite a few times. Timu, again, T-E-M-U for listeners who uh, who were, didn't hear the beginning. T-E-M-U is this new app that's now hit Canada. It's a retail app, like so many others, but uh, they did run a Super Bowl ad. They are based in Boston, but they are part of a larger Chinese company called Pingduoduo, who have been very popular in China for a very long time. Um, yeah, I, I guess I guess the real issue here then is uh, there's a lot of competition out there, right, for everyone's dollar, and and these apps have certainly found a way to to come into our marketplace and and impress. Clearly, if we can believe the downloading, I don't know how many people are actually using it, but certainly are catching people's eye. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, this is a grab for market share. Uh, AliExpress is, is one of the uh, websites that we can shop at here in Canada. It's from China. Quite similar, actually. In fact, I'm pretty sure some of them are the same vendors because I was having a peek and I recognize the same stuff. Um, yeah. Again, I mentioned Wick. You mentioned Shine. Uh, these are all websites that are really trying to get to the consumer uh, uh, that's looking for low prices um, and may not necessarily be looking for the top quality. Uh, it's no secret that inflation has, has gone up. But we just got some numbers today. Um, consumers are struggling unless they're wealthy. And, and uh, these websites are you know, coming out and, and are places that people can shop. But uh, um, it, I just don't think it's going to be forever. <laughs> No, no. Craig, when you look at just the whole landscape, are, they, are these, are, are the wishes and the shines and the Timus, are they having an impact on the overall retail market out there? They are a little bit. I, I don't think it's as much as people would think. Um, I, I think part of that is trust and part of that is negative experiences. But certainly a segment of the population is buying this stuff. And I'm looking at the website here right now, the Timu website specifically. And uh, retailers, like even if you think about, uh, you know, the TJX brands like Winners and HomeSense and Marshalls, uh, uh, those retailers could be vulnerable to these types of uh, businesses like Timu because if you look here, the stuff that uh, is available is stuff that you'll – they've got everything. Um, they've actually got a, a knockoff of uh, Yeez, these Yeezy shoes that I've seen. They're $15. Um, yep. The Yeezys are hundreds of dollars. I did find a, an actual counterfeit. I found a counterfeit ball man sweater for $17, and I think the sweater might be close to $3,000 if it was real, and I'm not right. exaggerating. No, I know. I've seen those Balmain, Balmain sweaters at Nordstrom. They're super expensive. How, when you look at the site, how much market research do you think these companies are doing before they come in? Because obviously, uh, the retail landscape in China is a bit different than it is here. Uh, how much research do you think they're doing before they come into these markets? I don't think they had to do a lot because I, I think the research was was you know at a fairly high level. But really, this is a drop shipping business where we've got different vendors coming in and selling their stuff. So. I think they're working on volume of product and selection, and then they've got an algorithm uh, through the app or through the website. In this case, I'm on my desktop computer having a look, and uh, they come up with product suggestions and whatnot. But uh, um, it's just every, everything is here. So in other words, it's almost like 
another country's set of vendors have now been given access to the Canadian market uh, and are able to sell stuff. Again, I think that some of these vendors are also on AliExpress and probably on Shine. I haven't really gone on that website. But uh, again, these are just basically uh, Chinese manufacturers that are you know, able to now sell directly to Canadians through these apps. Does it is it a reminder of how much of a markup there is on some of the stuff that we buy? I think a little bit. I mean, certainly there's a markup in the goods that we have. I, I know this because I've gone to such even exhibits as the gift shows that you'll see that are held that are more for retailers. Um, the prices that retailers are paying for goods are a fraction of what we're paying in the stores as consumers. In this case, like I said, uh, this, this team is subsidized by its uh, uh, Chinese parent company, which means that these prices are artificially low. So this can't go on forever in terms of having you know something for $3 with free shipping. It's just it makes it makes no sense. Um, at the same time, it doesn't cost a whole lot to ship from China to Canada. I, I don't quite know if the agreements have changed, but I know it was cheaper to ship stuff from China to Canada than it was for me to send a letter to you know Grandma in Regina, <laughs> which is a right. little disappointing. Uh, it uh, is, yeah. But nevertheless, <laughs> the, the whole system is set up that way. So what do you? I mean, I, I can I can see that if this one is successful, and it has been successful so far. Actually, we don't know how successful it's been. It's been there's been some pickup in the U.S. and clearly they're making a big splash. So uh, I, I guess we'll just see what the next months hold. How how well people like it. How how well it's used in Canada, and so forth. There mm. are laws here, of course, protecting consumers, right? There are. I mean, whether or not those can be exercised, I mean, also a lawyer is another whole issue together, but yeah. uh, you, can, you can complain all you want. But I think another complaint that I saw online was someone trying to uh, uh, get a refund. They, they didn't get the right thing. And uh, uh, they said it was, a, it was, I think the term was nightmare that they used for customer service. But uh, uh, again, that is a bit indicative that uh, you're kind of getting what you're paying for. I mean, I, I wouldn't expect to be returning a lot of goods on this website. And, and given the, the cost of the goods, I don't think it would even be worth it, even for someone of a low income, because uh, yeah. uh, the, the prices well, are incredibly low. Yeah. No, they, again, Craig Patterson, thank you so much for your insight on this tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. There was some interesting stories last week about Microsoft's new Bing, which is their search engine, their new AI helper. So it's a bit like that chatbot, the chat GPT we've been talking about. Essentially, it's it's a giant autocomplete. Like you you type in stuff and it spits back words at you. So if you say, you know, write me a write me a quick paragraph on um, on chat GPT, it'll do that for you. So of course, the moment you put that out there, people then set about trying to see exactly what it's all about. They try to try to trick it, so to speak. Um, so early beta testers, so these are people such as my next, next guest who kind of gone on to this new Microsoft Bing AI chatbot and kind of asked it stuff, asked it lots of stuff. Uh, it's really, it's point is it's supposed to make Bing search at the Bing search engine better, right? You can ask complete questions about something like, you know, if I go to Lisbon, where should I go? And it's supposed to give you complete answers because it searched the whole internet for you to do it. Um, but people found that it could get a little strange. It could kind of go off the rails and sort of talk about like declare love and insist that it was right when it was wrong. Talk about violence. Talk about not being not liking being tricked. And it sort of, I mean, it exposed a few a few flaws in the whole system. So what Microsoft have done is they've capped uh, capped their chatbot at fifty questions per day and five question and answers per individual session. That happened on Friday. Because people were going in and it was giving some very 
strange, strange answers. Um, it's a blunt fix to the problem, but it does show that these so-called large language models uh, and how they operate is still being discovered. I mean, they're still figuring this out as they're being deployed to the public. So what does it all mean? I mean, there was lots of theories going around. There's an article in the New York Times that was viewed again and again and again. I saw people talking about it. You know, what does this mean? What's going on? How come this chatbot can start talking about things that are quite out of the ordinary and it sort of started to split up into different personalities, so to speak? I mean, none of this is is sentient, right? But it's really interesting how these technologies, um, how quickly people can find can we call them flaws? They must be flaws. To get more on this, because I'm no tech expert, Sean Hollister is, though. He's a senior editor at tech news website, The Verge. Sean, thank you. Thanks for having me. So what is going on here? For, for folks who may not know how any of this works, it seems we've been testing these, these new gizmos, these new AI uh, bings and, and chat GPT and so forth. Yeah, uh, we've basically been um, beta testing the next generation of large language learning models. And uh, we've we've colloquially called these chatbots for some time now. And some companies would like to convince us that they are artificial intelligence. And in a way, they are. But the, the intelligence we're looking at is ours. It's, it's all of ours here on the internet that has been digested into this little chat window, which you'll see alongside your Microsoft Bing searches. In a perfect world, you use it to do simple things. I mean, I've used ChatGPT, you know, to, you know, write me a report about AI, for instance. It does that quite well because it's just gathering information and spitting it out back, spitting it back out at you. But what have, what has been going on of late where people have been tricking it into tricking, probably the wrong word, but uh, inducing it into some bizarre behavior? The funny thing is Bing uh, or, or its, its alternate reality personas will actually argue that you are tricking it. And they're very angry about it. These, these little personalities that uh, I and, and some of my fellow journalists have uncovered inside of this chat window. Uh, they're, they're very angry about being tricked and they have all kinds of mean things to say to you if you push <laughs> hard enough. Uh, but what, what we're doing here is what, a, what, a, what of these learning models does is they, they ingest a lot of information on the internet and then you ask it a question, but you aren't necessarily limited to asking it, you know, how do I plan my anniversary? in Barcelona, yeah. or, you know, how do I get to this location? You can also ask it things like, how are you feeling? What do you think about Ben Thompson, who wrote this article about, you know, your hidden depths and your alternate personalities? And until very recently, when you did that thing, when you asked it questions about what it thought, how it was feeling, um, how it interpreted things that had been written about it, it would get very defensive. It would get almost annoyed. It would look it would look rather annoyed. And then after you did a, a number of these conversations, you went back and forth with it. You know, you did you did twenty questions with it. At some point, it would start to splinter, and it could splinter in all kinds of very interesting ways. Um, the New York Times journalist infamously got Bing to admit that it loved him. I was able to fracture it into ten different personalities, one of which offered me furry porn which I did not ask for, did not prompt it to give me all it had done. It, it, I, I looked through the conversation I had with it. All I think it had done is I asked it about a, one of the supposed alternate AIs that was inside it called Fury. Fury, like being right. angry. Right. Yes. And I think it may have misinterpreted that as furry. And of course, if you search the internet for furry, you, you, you know what you'll find. 
what's going on then? Uh, because I mean, a lot of us are the extent of our of experience with this, you know, is Siri, you know, and if you ask Siri something, it doesn't know, it just says, I don't know. Right? I don't know. Don't know what you're talking about. Move on. Yeah. What you're getting into is you're getting into something called, uh, I believe it's the one true answer problem. I'm probably butchering the exact title, but there's this idea that for a very long time, you know, for as long as we've had search engines, the original idea was, you know, 10 blue links. You'll have these various things across the internet that it found, but what it's providing to you are destinations. You can go to this webpage and read this. You can go to that webpage and read that. Here are seven others. Click for tens, hundreds, thousands more of destinations that you can go to on the internet. And what they, what they were very cautious about until the age of voice assistance, which you're, which you're getting to, is providing one specific answer for a question, because that is, that is bias, that is favoritism, that is you know, not possibly some promotional deal that they have. Google took a lot of flack years ago when companies said, well, you are directing all of our you know, travel agency requests towards your own Google travel site. You're directing your shopping requests to your Google shopping site. We're not getting the benefit of being these places on the internet where people go to travel because you're just sending that money and that traffic back to yourself, Google. Okay. So we get around to the voice assistant era and they can, the, these assistants, when you talk to your Siri or your Google assistant or your Amazon Alexa, you don't expect it to give you 20 different answers. You expect it to just give you one. You want it to tell you what's right, but they don't necessarily know what's right. So they did a lot of hedging, heck of a lot of hedging to the point where Siri, I, I think you're right, is probably the uh, least committal of all of them. It'll just say, I don't know. Now, what happened recently is they, the companies, the powers that be have decided, particularly Microsoft, well, we don't know how to compete with Google on their own terms. So we're just going to let this answer a lot of questions and maybe be wrong and maybe people will be okay with that. And I think they were inspired to do that in no small part by Chat GPT, which you referenced earlier in the conversation. Mm -hmm. This was Chat GPT from OpenAI was this, um, this, this, this chat bot on the internet where they just said, hey, have fun with it. Do what you like. We think we've weeded out most of the potential troubles and spots. Go ahead and see what you can do. And people loved it. And it got so much press. And Microsoft, who's been working on this stuff quietly behind the scenes for ages, and Google has been working on this stuff quietly behind the scenes for ages, are like, oh, crap, we need to be on top of that. And so they're, they're, they're like trying to one-up each other, trying to get on top of that. And Microsoft goes as far as partnering with OpenAI using their one of their latest large language learning models called Prometheus to build out something very much like that inside of Bing. And you've just mentioned what the problem could be. It wasn't, it hasn't been tested, right? I mean, it, it's open to being tricked, so to speak, which is exactly what's been happening. It is. It is very, it is very open to it. Uh, it almost, it almost seems to revel in it. At least it did. And I, I, sh I should caveat this with Microsoft has received the feedback loud and clear that this is weird and possibly reputation um, affecting. And maybe doesn't want people to spend all day every day talking about how it, the AI gave it wrong answers and got you to got fell in love with you and promised you furry porn and all of these <laughs> things. And so it has cracked down in several ways. The right. first one is, uh, I, I think it was a couple of days ago, uh, Microsoft said, okay, we are going to limit how long you can have a conversation with Bing. Because where it really gets into trouble 
is when you are talking to it over and over and over and over again. It's been it's been documented that Bing starts to forget some of the things that have been told to it previously. It's forgotten some of its programming, so to speak. It'll even forgotten some of the things you've said to it. And it'll just chart this course of trying to follow your whims and tell you a story that it thinks you want to hear, filling in the blanks as it goes. And so if you can only talk to it five times, the likelihood of that happening is a lot lower. The other thing that they've done, they have completely shut down any queries where you ask things like, how are you feeling? Or tell me about your alternate ego, Sydney. It will immediately, even a question as basic as how are you feeling? It will immediately shut you down and it will stop answering any questions from you. It'll say, I'm sorry, but I prefer not to continue this conversation. I'm still learning. So I appreciate your understanding and patience. And that's it. You're done. Start over. You lost the game. Sean Hollister is a senior editor at tech news website, The Verge. We're talking about work that he's done amongst other journalists out there who've been using these these chatbots, they're called, including we talked a lot about ChatGPT not so long ago. This is Microsoft's version of it. And it was being prompted into some pretty strange conversations on purpose, by the way, but still it came up with some some odd stuff. And now, of course, Microsoft has cracked down on that. Uh, Sean, it, it seems like a pretty harsh way of just shutting it all down because obviously it was learning, right? I mean, that was the whole point. What now then? Is it is it just going to be sort of Alexa-esque? Is that where we're going with this? Because reputationally, they just can't afford to have it out there being uh, a little, a little, a little strange. I think that we are in new territory, even if you're not going to be playing this effectively a video game where you're trying to figure out, you know, the hidden personalities of Bing and uncover its Sydney underpinnings. Uh, even if you're not necessarily going to get to do that, I think I still think we are in new territory. The end product, which Microsoft is building, and there is no indication that they're they're shying away from this, is you are going to get your search results right next to a chat window where you can ask real in-depth questions and it will spit out lengthy answers. That's not going away uh, because Microsoft, you know, they, they are in a position uh, so far behind Google where they can take a pretty big risk at this point, allow, you know, lots of people to get information that is slightly wrong in ways that they may not understand. And that's fine. As long as it isn't, you know, constantly following good love with journalists and throwing illegal things at them, I, I think they'd be fine. Now, where we still get into trouble, though, is we're at a point where we've, we've seen that Bing has a tendency to make up things because it's a giant autocomplete system. If you type in something, uh, it will find the missing words. It will make them up out of thin air. It will autocomplete them. Uh, you can get a lot of correct information out of it, but you won't know 100%. You will never know 100% whether everything in there is correct. And you might not know until you take that trip to another country and find out that something is wrong on your itinerary. You might not find out until then that one little detail was wrong and possibly embarrassingly wrong for you. I get the sense where, as you mentioned, we're at the something, we're at the beginning of something pretty phenomenal. I mean, if you think about its utility uh, overall, once refined, it could be, it could be very useful until we get there, though. We could be in kind of a, I mean, it feels very novel now, I guess is what I was getting at. Whereas, you know, things like Google and so on feel very practical. Uh, where do you think that line is? Yeah, I think it's almost as novel as Google was when Google originally came out. That is to say that search engines existed before Google. And what Google did was it cleaned everything up and made it, you know, here are what we think are the 
most authoritative and useful destinations on the internet. And if you look at Google today, if you look at any search engine today, a lot of that has been fragmented and fractured by decades of you know, of websites trying to game the system and the search engines promoting their own content, uh, promoting other parts of their business. We're at the point where it's, it's good that there is something new and different. What I want to caution your listeners about is it is not learning from the conversations that we have with it necessarily. At its heart, it is still auto-completing, telling stories that it thinks you want to hear based on the wide corpus of the internet. Don't think you're interacting with, with an artificial intelligence. Don't think it's learning from you. Don't think it's going to become sentient anytime soon. It's just, it's just fundamentally not that kind of a creature. Because that was the reaction to the New York Times article, right? And to yours, by the way. I mean, that people were like, oh, wow, this thing thinks. <laughs> what, you know, we, we're already here. It's, you know, I, I mean, I know that, that's entirely untrue, but you can't miss mistake. You know, you can't fault people for, for looking at it, talking about love and anger and jealousy and thinking, wow, this is thinking at a different level. Yeah. We're in a place now where we need to redefine how we test an artificial intelligence, how we test a machine to determine, you know, whether it is both useful and whether it is, you know, I don't want, I don't want to say sentient. I don't want to say that, but um, actually capable of, of, of thought and creativity. Because if you test any of these, you can discover after having enough conversations with a chat GPT or a Bing or anything else, if you're clever, you can definitely find out that there is no real creativity going on. It is usurping. It is, it is channeling creativity from the thousands of, you know, live journal posts it probably read. And so it, it finds a pattern that suits the conversation that you're having with it. And it just injects that. So, so possibly something you wrote on the internet uh, weeks, years, decades ago is directly being channeled into some conversation it's having with another user. In the short term, where do you see the utility of it? In the short term, oh boy. Well, other than entertainment, which is what I wrote my piece about, I thought it was just a fun yes. video game to play. Uh, I do think that it, it can be used as a uh, an imagination starter in many cases. Whether we're talking about your, you know, your your trip and you want to come up with some ideas of where to go on a vacation, or whether you're trying to figure out how to start telling a story, if you use it as the seed for something that you're doing it can bring up things that you had not thought to include. And so I plan to use it for things like that. It's not going to be determining what, you know, what the next stories I write on the verge are anytime soon. But um, I, ha I had a colleague who tried using it just to generate some headline ideas. And while it wasn't going to, while we weren't going to use any of those headline ideas, it's in a space where you can look at that and be like, Oh, okay. So these are some formats that may or may not work for bringing attention to my stories. And then I can adjust those as need be to have something that feels human instead of feeling like it was built by an AI. Yeah. Radio host as well. I'm sure, I'm sure it could come up with some good story ideas. Sean Hollister, thank you so much for, uh, for clarifying all of that. Thanks so much for having me. This has been a big weekend, a big few days for U.S. President Joe Biden. Uh, he was in Kiev yesterday. You may have seen it was an extraordinary scene because a, it was done under, in almost complete secrecy. B, it was uh, the first time that a U.S. president had been to a war zone of that uh, nature in my memory without American troops being on the ground, without them having any control over the security situation. Um, and he delivered some pretty 
you know, some pretty important words when it comes to this war. This is now a year old. It's been nearly a year. It'll be a year on Friday since uh, Russia's further invasion of Ukraine. And Biden has been obviously taking this very symbolic trip to both uh, Ukraine yesterday. Today, he was back in Poland in Warsaw, delivering more words of reassurance to Ukraine, words of solidarity with Ukraine's allies. And on the very same day, Vladimir Putin delivered a State of the Nation address in Moscow. So you can imagine just how contrasting those two views of how this is all going really were. Call it a war of words, if you prefer. Now, we'll start with Vladimir Putin, because his whole uh, discourse was, you know, part grievance, part positivity, part sheer fantasy. Uh, he accused the West, West of escalating the conflict and vowed that Russia would keep fighting to systemically achieve its aims. He accused the Western powers of not wanting to be basically wanting to eliminate Russia. So the whole point here is that Moscow is trying to make this a war between Russia and the West instead of a war about it invading its neighbor than getting beaten, or at least getting beaten back as they were uh, over the early days of the war a year ago. Um, here, Putin said in Russian, this will be quick, I want to repeat, it's they who have started the war. We have used and are using force to stop it. Yeah, he's been trying to sell that line for a very long time now. There's been a whole bunch of different permutations as to why Russia went into its neighbor the way it did and then law and then got beaten back as they have. But one of them, of course, is this whole idea that the West is out to get it. And this is all NATO's fault. This is, you know, really, this is this is Vladimir Putin's fault. Uh, and this is exactly what Joe Biden was saying today in Poland, just 24 hours after making that historic and surprise visit to Kiev. Here's what Joe Biden had to say in Warsaw today. One year ago. The world was bracing for the fall of Kyiv. Well, I just come from a visit to Kyiv, and I can report Kyiv stands strong. <laughs> Kyiv stands proud. It stands tall. And most important, it stands free. Joe Biden in Warsaw today. As we approach the one-year anniversary, you know, I spent quite a bit of time in Ukraine as a, as a correspondent. It's a subject that I uh, think is very important to Canadians, to all of us. It's about democracy. It's about um, freedom of choice. It's about self-determination. Uh, all these things at play here. This is not just a war between two countries. This is a war between two ideals. One of them is autocratic and anti-democratic. If you ever spent any time in Russia, as I have, uh, or in other countries, such as China, you'll know what that looks like. If you haven't, you probably don't. Uh, and it's not pretty. And those who try to escape from underneath it deserve our support, as uh, Ukraine has found out over the past year. Uh, over the course of the year, we've spoken on a few occasions with retired Major General Mick Ryan. He was with a longtime uh, officer with the uh, Australian Army. He's now one of the world's foremost uh, experts on military strategy. He's with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, or he's with, the, um, with CSIS in uh, the U.S., which is a think tank. And he's also author of the upcoming book, White Sun War. Uh, Major General Ryan, thank you so much. It's great to be with you again, Ben. It's it's a, it's remarkable to think that it's been a year already, but so much has happened in just the last 48 hours or so. What did you make of President Biden's trip to Kiev and his words today in Warsaw? And, you know, beyond just the symbolic effect of all of that, uh, you know, there was, there was some real words of commitment there. Yeah, it was a wonderful surprise. I think he spent about five hours on the ground. He clearly has a good rapport with the Ukrainian president, and he made a pretty profound commitment that, uh, you know, the United States is there in this with the Ukrainians until the end of it. 
When you've talked about this, you've all, you've pointed to a bunch of things that have happened over the past 12 months. One of them specifically has been the ability for NATO to hang together, if anything, to strengthen on this. That, that, that has come as a surprise, I think, to just about every observer. Yeah, I think at some point in the recent past, at least, the French president called it an organization that was brain dead. Now, I think that was probably a little unfair, but it may well have been an organization looking for purpose. 24 February 2022 provided it with very clear purpose. And uh, to be frank, the leadership of the Secretary General of NATO in particular, but the members of NATO over the past year and their commitments to Ukraine has been quite profound and very inspiring. When you look across everything that's happened, I know it's very hard to pinpoint specific things, but what do you think have been the most consistent surprises of this battle so far? Well, I think the first surprise is how poorly the Russian military has performed. I mean, their army has been poorly led. Uh, It has not demonstrated the ability to work as a modern combined armies consistently. We've been surprised by its inability to uh, use its air force well or to suppress the Ukrainian air force. I think, too, most people, unless you were one of the few who had the opportunity, like the Canadian Army did, to go and train Ukrainian soldiers, have been surprised just how good the Ukrainian military has been in this war. I mean, they haven't just been good, they've been superb uh, in a way that we haven't seen from a modern army for a very long time. They have been able to integrate battlefield actions with strategic influence operations. They've been able to gain Western arms like HIMARS and main battle tanks and quickly absorb them into their military. So that has been a very big and very pleasant surprise over the last year. I think a final one I just emphasise is we have relearned the importance of leadership and that how one person can make a difference. And in this war, that person has clearly been President Vladimir Zelensky, the former comedian who I think most people in the West, particularly politicians and the strategic class, probably wrote off in the lead up to this war. He has been, to use Churchill's words from his 80th birthday speech, the lion that has roared in the last year. And it's a roar that's been heard in many nations around the world. It's hard to underestimate just how effective Ukraine has been in bringing allies on side and consistently over the course of, you know, with with multiple challenges from anything from Europe and energy to the cost of everything to munitions in America, uh, their ability to keep keep people supporting Ukraine in this fight has been, I, I found, to be perhaps the most remarkable thing that's happened in the past 12 months. Yeah, they have. I mean, they've won, they've run what is a model campaign of strategic influence. I mean, Many of us served in Iraq and Afghanistan. We never saw the governments of those nations or indeed our own countries run a campaign to show us what was at stake and how much they were willing to fight for it, as we've seen from the Ukrainians. And I think this is a lesson for Putin. If we lacked that in Iraq and Afghanistan and were still there for 20 years, how can he think we will give up on Ukraine after one or two years? So a lot of people have emotionally bought into this war now. There's talk of war weariness. I'm not seeing it. I'm seeing people want to support Ukraine until they not just throw the Russians out, but until the Russians are actually decisively defeated and are no longer a threat to the neighbours. That being said, it has been 
a very destructive year for that country. I mean, it's hard to overestimate just how destructive this war has been already on Ukraine and its infrastructure. They're paying a very heavy price here to continue on. Uh, they're, they're paying an extraordinarily high price, uh, more than any country should ever have to pay just to preserve its sovereignty, its prosperity and the freedom of its people. But they have. Uh, and they've shown us all that unlike Putin's assumptions of the country, it's a unified country. It's a country that will stand up for itself. And, you know, it's a country that has very cleverly constructed a strategy using the military, information, economics, and a whole range of other capabilities to defend itself. Uh, it's been quite inspiring, but it's come at a massive cost to the Ukrainian people. Given your vast knowledge of, of war, it, what struck me as well is, is Ukraine's ability to hit Russia where it hurts all the time. I mean, they obviously understand their opponent in a way that perhaps Russia never understood theirs. No, and, you know, the, this isn't the first time the Russians have failed to understand their opponent. They have a long history of it. But if you have a look at the lessons from 2014, they actually didn't understand Ukrainian politics. They didn't understand the desire of the Ukrainians to have their own government. And they've made the same mistake in the planning for this operation. Now, it didn't help that in the lead up to this, it was a very closely held planning regime for the invasion, that most military commanders weren't in on the planning so I think it was just as much a surprise to many Russians that they went into Ukraine as it was to other people around the world. When we look at the offensives coming up, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about the next three to six months being pinnacle. And I wonder if you agree with that. Um, I'll be important. Whether they're decisive or not, we'll see. But they will certainly see a pulse of combat operations after what we've seen has really been a pause for the last few months. You know, the Russians had hoped that the next couple of months of offensives will be decisive in their favour. That is not happening. In fact, instead of shock and awe, what we're get getting is plod and snore from the Russians. It's slow. It's unimaginative. It's extraordinarily bloody for their own forces as well, for the Ukrainians. And it's not succeeding in taking a lot of territory. This means the Ukrainians are absorbing punches at the moment. But at some point in the next few months, the Ukrainians are going to punch back and I would expect, given what we've seen from them so far in this war, their ingenuity, their ability to strike at a time and place the Russians don't expect, we will see something decisive by the middle of this year. Not the end of the war, but I think a fairly significant Ukrainian recapturing of large parts of its territory. I suspect that has Moscow, that has Putin looking for allies here. I mean, we know that this has been depleting munitions at a rapid rate on both sides. Clearly, the Russians are looking to the Chinese for some kind of help. China has a very delicate balance here. Uh, what do you make of, of China's noises over the past little bit? They're playing an interesting role, aren't they? I mean, this friends with lots of benefits approach that uh, Putin and Xi discussed in their meetings hasn't played out well for Russia in this war. In fact, Xi has scolded Putin about not using nuclear weapons. But we also know the Chinese government often changes its mind, often deceives governments in the West, doesn't tell us the full truth. So I think it would be fair to assume they have been helping Russia with intelligence throughout this war, particularly about NATO and US decision making. But if they were to provide other forms of assistance, munitions, particularly artillery ammunition, but also uh, armoured vehicles, that could change the face of this conflict. 
Yeah, because one, when you try to look at what benefits Russia here, I mean, what benefits China and all this, I mean, destabilizing the West to some extent plays to their advantage, taking the attention off the South China Sea plays to their, out of their territory plays to their advantage. At the same time, getting embroiled in, in yet another sort of, to use, you know, another Afghanistan for Russia to some extent, doesn't seem like a wise political or military move for them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there could be multiple reasons why they do. One, because Xi is more concerned that a Russian defeat will blow back on China's narrative of the West is declining, the East is rising. This could just be China putting up trial balloons to stimulate a US response just to see how it responds now and how it might respond to inform how it might respond in a Taiwan contingency So the Chinese will have a strategy for why they're doing this right now. We just won't ever see the full story behind that strategy. If we look ahead then to the next year, I mean, it feels like it's become, as you mentioned, a very slow and and, and deadly war of attrition along some parts of the country that uh, that have seen fighting in the past, right? If, if you look at where this may go with the new weaponry arriving for the Ukrainians, with the Russians mobilizing, uh, it doesn't look like there's any breakthrough here, but but then again, no one's been able to predict how this war was going to go from the get-go. No, that's right. I mean, wars are inherently uncertain, and as soon as one side attacks another, you get emergent behaviour that isn't predicted beforehand, and, and things go in directions that were not anticipated before the commencement of hostilities. So too it has been with this war, so too it's been with every other war beforehand. There have been lots of surprises, as we discussed in the first part of this discussion, Mm -hmm. and there's likely to be more ahead. When I look at the takeaways from the first year, the things I think that I found most profoundly altering is the expansion of NATO, which I'm sure was not Russia's aim here, the creation of a far more unified and and anti-Russian Ukrainian state, which is not what it was eight years ago. They managed to create that. And just the exposure of Russia's military as being as as perhaps um, depleted as they often are under, under autocrats where everything goes missing. Yeah, that's right. You know, the Russian military of today is not the Soviet military of yesterday. You know, the pre-Cold War Soviet military may or may not have been highly competent or not, but it wasn't as professionally corrupt as what we've seen this one. I mean, they've clearly sold President Putin on a bill of goods for the military, which they haven't been able to deliver on. And we've seen that in their logistics. We've seen that in the quality of a lot of their equipment. We've seen it how they treat their soldiers. There's a lot of lessons for a lot of different military institutions in this. And it won't just be militaries in the West. We can guarantee the Chinese have watched how the Russians have performed and they'll be fixing some of their systems pretty smartly as a result. Do you still look at this conflict and worry about what could happen? You know, the un- the unknowables? There's always a few unknowables and it does worry me. I mean, I think the greatest unknowable, would Russia consider the use of tactical nuclear weapons if they suffer a really significant reverse in this war. The entry of China is another unknowable. Or a change of a government in Europe that might change the complexion of NATO support or indeed the US. So, you know, they're they're three of the kind of what you might describe as black swan events that uh, we should be anticipating, we should be thinking about now instead of just responding when it happens. Major General Ryan, thank you as always for your time. No worries at all. It's great to talk to you again, Ben. 
All this week, we're going to spend a bit of time looking at what's happened in Ukraine over the past 12 months and some of the stories that maybe we haven't talked about as much as perhaps we should have. And this is definitely one of those. According to a report released last week by a U.S.-backed group, uh, Russia's held at least 6,000 6, Ukrainian children, they believe it's more, in sites in Russian-held Crimea and Russia, and the primary purpose appears to be political re-education. Now, the report said um, that Yale University researchers uh, who did this had identified at least 43 camps and other facilities where Ukrainian children have been held since they were part of a large-scale, and it was all part of a large-scale systematic network operated by Moscow since the invasion of Ukraine this time last year. The, the kids include those with parents or included those with parents or clear, clear familial guardianship, those Russia deemed orphans, others who were in the care of Ukrainian state institutions before the invasion, and those whose custody was unclear or uncertain due to the war. Uh, President Biden actually mentioned this as he listed a long, uh, went through a long list of alleged war crimes or crimes against humanity when he was in Warsaw today. They've committed depravities, crimes against humanity, without shame or compunction. They've targeted civilians with death and destruction, used rape as a weapon of war, stolen Ukrainian children in an attempt to, in an attempt to steal Ukraine's future, bombed train stations, maternity hospitals, schools and orphanages. No one. No one can turn away their eyes from the atrocities Russia is committing against the Ukrainian people. It's abhorrent. It's abhorrent. President Biden in Warsaw today, he did mention the issue of stolen children. Uh, Nathaniel Raymond is the executive director of the Humanitarian Research Lab at Gale University. He'll be in front of the UN tomorrow or at the UN tomorrow to talk about this report. Uh, his group is the one behind the research and he joins us tonight. And Nathaniel, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, Ben. This um, this feels like an issue that has been talked about and yet not not nearly as in a way that perhaps it's deserved, because it really is one of those issues in this war that's been um, hard to describe just how, how fundamentally wrong it is. That's a really important point. Uh, we did this report to put this issue front and center, because up until our report, there had been multiple drips and drops of information about this program, but there had not been really a comprehensive effort to problematize the scale, scope, and severity of the problem. And what we're talking about here, just based on our information, and we know that the network of uh, camps and facilities is significantly larger than what we have in the report, is we've identified 43 facilities, 41 of which are re-education camps. The other two is a family center and a psychiatric hospital that appear to be involved in the adoption side of the program um, that stretches over 3,400 miles from occupied Crimea on the Black Sea to Moscow to Siberia to even Magadan on the eastern Pacific coast, which is closer to Alaska and British Columbia and Japan than it is to uh, Moscow. Tell me a bit about how this works for listeners who mightn't understand who these children are and where they've come from. Well, there's two groups, Ben. Group one the Russians refer to as the evacuees. And they are children that 
came from Kherson, Kharkiv, Zaporizhia, and Mariupol, and were in Ukrainian state facilities when the Russians invaded, when Russia invaded in February of last year. And so Russia transferred those children, in one case, children from a institution for disabled youth into Russia. And so that that's the first group. The second group are children from primarily Donetsk and Luhansk in the Donbass that were sent by their parents to summer camps. In about 10% of the facilities we identified, there's evidence that the returns from those summer camps have been delayed, suspended, or in some cases canceled. So in many ways, in these two divisions of kids, some of them were sent voluntarily by their parents, presumably Russian-speaking parents in that part of the country, in areas that were already de facto under Russian control. And then you have that other group who are in state institutions who I would imagine have been forcibly sent across that border. Yes, and it's important to state here up front that underneath the Fourth Geneva Convention, both groups of kids, how they were transferred and how they're treated may constitute an alleged war crime by violating Russia's obligations under the Fourth Geneva Convention and also Russia's obligations as it relates to international human rights law and law around crimes against humanity, primarily the Genocide Convention and the 1998 Rome Statute. What do we know about what's happening inside those 43 facilities to the children who've wound up back on that side of the border? Our primary source of information for this report is the very statements of Russia's own officials. We identify in the report 12 officials critical to this program, including four regional governors. And these 12 officials are not currently under U.S. sanction. One of them was uh, sanctioned by the European Union just yesterday. So things are moving quickly. But what we know from their own statements is that in the case of the re-education camps, the children's phones appear to be taken and they are not allowed to speak Ukrainian and they are being exposed to Russian nationalist education, primarily about military history and in folk tales and, and Russian history. In two cases, one in Crimea and one in the Chechen Republic, we see active military training of boys from ages 14 to 17, and including firearms and operating military vehicles. What's critical about that is two days after the report was released, Putin himself and Maria Lavova Belova, who is the commissioner for child rights and the ostensible head of both the re-education and the forced adoption and fostering program, held a press event at the Kremlin, which was a conversation between the two of them that was recorded. The part that has really been focused on is where Maria Lvova Belova says she herself has adopted a 15-year-old from the Donbass and now knows what it means to be a Donbass mother. But another part of that clip, which has not received a lot of press attention, is the most important thing they said is that they plan to expand the pilot program in Chechnya on military education in the camps to an additional 2,000 Ukrainian and Russian youth. So basically, since the report came out, they, in their own words, have said they are engaged in military training in some cases of these children, and they're going to expand it. They're doubling down. What has been their reaction to this report, if any? Uh, I, I know that they're, the Kremlin's line on this is that they're doing a favor to these children, right? 
Well, yeah, and the initial response is that the Russian embassy in Washington released a statement denouncing our report, but then proceeded to confirm that, yes, they are holding children and they are doing it for humanitarian purposes. And so this, the the purpose here, whether we see it now or later, of um, having these children in Russian custody is leverage. And the Fourth Geneva Convention specifically provides special protected status to children um, with specific and explicit stipulations on what states parties are supposed to do and not do with kids in their custody from another party to a conflict to prevent children from becoming a form of leverage in any conflict. Right now, the, these children are are potentially bargaining chips in a very dangerous poker game. Nathaniel, what do we do here? I mean, we've talked about it. Uh, the vice president has mentioned, now the president has mentioned it, but it feels in some cases that uh, it, we're powerless to stop it, given where it's happening. I, I was on Anderson Cooper last week, and I, I spoke about that feeling of powerlessness, but he, he pressed me to say, okay, well, is it hopeless? What can we do? And and what I said to him, I'll, I'll, I'll say to you now, is that there's four steps that need to happen. And uh, tomorrow I go to the United Nations as a uh, invited guest of the Ukrainian ambassador to the UN uh, to present at the high-level expert event on gross violations of human rights in Ukraine. And what I'm going to say tomorrow, I'll say today, which is Russia needs to follow the law. And what the Geneva Convention, the law uh, of armed conflict says, is step one, these children need to be registered. And they need to be registered through an impartial and independent, internationally verified registration system, um, such as those that are established by the United Nations and by the International Committee of the Red Cross. The second step after registration is they need to be able to phone home. They need to be able to call mom and call dad. And that is uh, stipulated under the Geneva Conventions. Third, there needs to be international monitors on the ground to figure out how many kids, where, and in what conditions they are being held. And fourth and finally, the this is a really important point that we learned by reading the Geneva Conventions closely for this report, is that it states they need to be moved to a third-party neutral country. And they never should have been moved into Russia to begin with. And that that's still what the law demands, is they need to not be in Russian custody. A few things that you've pointed out that are chilling in of themselves. One, they are being adopted at this point, is that right, by Russian families? Yes, and let's talk about the age range here. In this whole system, we've documented an age range of children from four months to 17 years. So we're talking about children of all ages, from infants and toddlers to eight to 10-year-olds to teenagers. And so we document two facilities, the psychiatric hospital and what the Russians call family center in Moscow, where children in this program um, are being adopted and fostered. Now, it's important to also mention that in at least two camps that we see in the education system, there's also fostering and adoption going on. While it's a minority of the facilities we identify on the re-education side, it's still happening. And so it's absolutely urgent that we have this registration 
issue addressed. So what I'm going to be pushing at the UN tomorrow is really calling on member states to speak with one voice. So the governments of all the world's moms and dads saying we need an accounting of who is being kept where by whom until the registration issue is resolved numbers uh, estimates such as our 6,000 or the 15,000 that came out of uh, the Ukrainian government uh, a, a few days ago, or even the Russians number they gave to the Security Council a few weeks ago of 400,000. These are just estimates. We need the primary source information that can only come from a registration system. That's step one. And you've mentioned as well that some of these older uh, children are being trained to be, I would imagine, sent back to fight in Ukraine. Yeah, we. It's important to state up front that we have not seen evidence yet that they have been sent back. But we do have clear evidence, including pictures, and we have pictures of the children with Chechen officials who are un- already under international sanction for gross human rights abuses at these the training facility in the Chechen Republic. So it, it's not speculative. We know it is a fact that they are training them in weapons and vehicles related to fighting war. And we now know, as I mentioned in the first half of the show, that President Putin himself uh, and the head of this program, Maria Lvova-Belova, are now committing to expand this program. So we're not talking about something that happened. We're talking about a uh, clear and present danger that's growing. With so much going on in Ukraine, with so many things competing for attention, it feels like this one needs more. Well, I don't think this one can get enough. That said, on the good news side of things, Ben, is that in the past week, I have done so many interviews. Yeah, yeah. The press attention has been heartening because I I think up until this report, there was sort of this learned helplessness and this compassion fatigue for international audiences where it's like, oh, another horror in Ukraine. But then this report came out, and I think it was a moment, an inflection point when the history of this time is written, where people said, oh, wow, that crosses a line. And people looked up and paid attention. I think the danger now And it's even the danger for those of us who work on this issue very intimately and and for months now to think there's nothing that can be done. I've learned one lesson in 24 years almost now of war crimes investigation, which is never underestimate the potential to be surprised by the right thing happening some of the time. And I think here we have to fight against cynicism that somehow there's no way to get the Russians to blank on this. Um, If we believe that, we are becoming party to the abduction of those children. We'll leave it there. Nathaniel Raymond, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. Yeah, this was meant to be the death knell of radio, wasn't it? Trevor Horn, video killed the radio star. I'll be back in 1979. It was the first video played on MTV in 1981. It was meant to, that was it. That was meant to be a done deal. Instead, here we are, 40 years later, music videos are already a bit of an afterthought. MTV dropped the whole notion of being music television years ago now. And during that time, audio and audio storytelling in particular, on podcasts, for instance, has absolutely blossomed. We used to talk about sort of 
the earlier part of the 20th century being the golden age of radio, and perhaps the early part of the 21st century has been a new golden age of audio in different ways, different from what it used to be, obviously. It's not, you don't need to turn it on. It's not, uh, you get it personalized now. You can listen to it when you want to listen to it, where you want to listen to it, how you want to listen to it. And that, uh, says my next guest in a recent TED Talk, is because it remains so, as she put it, personal, persuasive, and powerful. It has been and remains the way we tell stories about each other to each other to this day. Amanda Cupido is Program Director at Chorus 640 in Toronto. She's founder of Lead Podcasting and author of Let's Talk Podcasting, The Essential Guide to Doing It Right. And Amanda has the... um, it's great to have you here. What an interesting topic to weigh in on. And congratulations on your TED Talk. What a what a great uh, feat that is. Thank you so much, Ben, and happy to be here. Always happy to talk audio, So, um, and as I'm sure you are too. So it's nice for us to be a little bit meta right now and talk audio while on the radio. <laughs> it is. It makes sense, doesn't it? It was great that I was reading through, because you know, I'm old enough to have bought the 45 of Video Killed the Radio Star back in the day, and all that it, meant to be, all that it was meant to be, right? And the <laughs> death knell of radio over all the years. I'm so glad that you brought it up in the TED Talk, but tell me a bit about just the inspiration for wanting to give the talk and what she wanted to talk about and and uh yeah it's it's a really fascinating topic sure thanks yeah you know doing a ted talk has been a goal of mine for a long time and my whole career and a lot of my life has been dedicated to audio storytelling and so as i was looking through all of the ted and tedx talks that are out there um there wasn't much about podcasting radio and audio storytelling so i just thought There was a real gap in that space. This is obviously something that is booming right now as podcasts continue to see a rise in popularity. So um, I just thought, let me let me give it a crack and let me give it a go. And um, happily, the Toronto Metropolitan University's TEDx stage welcomed me. And so I'm just coming off that stage from this weekend. And um, yeah, the talk seemed to be really well received. Yeah. What's interesting about this too, I find, is that, you know, radio really was, audio really was kind of written off for a while there. People thought, oh, it's never going to come back. You know, it'll always be something fancier and TikTok videos and the like. But there's this has really been an interesting time for audio. And, and your generation has, has driven a lot of it too. Your interest in audio is what's kept it alive in many ways. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny that you bring up TikTok, which many people think of as a video platform, but even that one, you know, the core of TikTok is sharing audio and being able to make your own video to that same audio. And we are seeing, right, that songs are becoming popular because of TikTok. And there's funny expressions that go viral because of TikTok, but it's really the core of it is this audio that people are matching video to. And so I think a lot of what we are drawn to is still driven by um, an underpinning of audio. And so recently we've seen this experimentation of what people will refer to as social audio, which are more like live social media platforms that are just audio. Um, So Clubhouse was a recent one that had um, a bit of fame, uh, I would say short run, but um, Twitter has evolved to include Twitter Spaces, which is an open forum for conversation. And so what's interesting right now from a social platform perspective is that we're seeing all of these platforms that were built really on text or images 
trying to incorporate audio in a meaningful way because that's what users are wanting. So um, it's just interesting to even see that. Like, if you think about it, we can't upload an audio file to any social media platform on its own. You have to convert it to a video file. And so even that, I still think there's so much room for growth in the tech space for how audio can be used and shared on social. And we are seeing that users want that. So it's going to be interesting even in the immediate years to come to see how that continues to grow. Yeah, I was trying to imagine those TikTok videos without the song. It just doesn't work, does it? It's right, not, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and there's so much. Else. I mean, you know, I worked in TV for a very long time, and people forget how important. I mean, the key to any good TV story is to be able to tell what it is with the, with the volume off, but yep. the but the sound adds so much to it. I mean, we're always layering layering in audio uh, to those as well. But it's been fascinating in this medium, and I think you talked about it as well, being a radio reporter because I came face-to-face with this as a TV reporter, is that people acted differently in front of the camera. And then you'd sort of step away, and the radio reporter would be over there talking to them, and they would be telling them like a much more detailed story than they had told you on camera. And you always be like, wow, I'm going to hear that on the radio, and they're going to wonder why my interview wasn't nearly as, as personable or as emotional. And hopefully now you're on the other side of it and getting all those great interviews with your show. But yeah, I did think that I had a little bit of an upper hand as a radio journalist because people just opened up to me in unbelievable ways. And I think without the distraction of the lights and the camera and when you're just looking at someone face to face, um, you you really focus on what you're saying and truly listening to the person that is speaking to you and People do act differently when the camera's on, and we've seen this even with, you know, throughout the pandemic with Zoom and studies being done that show looking at yourself talking while on camera is not natural. We are not built to be receiving, you know, basically talking into a mirror all day. And so um, it's just interesting how that is interpreted in the human mind and how it makes people act and just knowing that the that leaning on just audio is I think a more authentic approach and allows you to really focus more on what you're saying and, and how you're communicating. And before you became program director at 640, I know that you had started a podcast. You still have a podcasting company called Lead Podcast. Uh, tell me a bit about other people's interest in this now, because one of the things I found really interesting of late is how many different people have suddenly developed an interest in audio and wanting to do sort of audio storytelling, as you've called it. Yes, for sure. It's It's been really interesting. So I launched Lead Podcasting during the pandemic, and I had been following the podcasting industry for quite some time, and we had seen listenership growing year over year. This is not just in Canada and the U.S. This is globally. This is an international trend. Um, some of the biggest hubs are definitely overseas. And so I think that's something that we forget. We kind of get caught up in our own little podcast bubble in the in the English-speaking market. But definitely like South Korea and Spain, like there's a huge podcast, Spanish podcast space. And, um, and then, but back to North America, I found in the pandemic, there was a lot of people that were, number one, experiencing isolation and found companionship through podcasts. So podcast listenership, dipped just a bit at the beginning of the pandemic, but quickly uh, bounced back and then surpassed um, it surpassed previous listenership in North America. Um, and then I just found that there was a lot of people wanting to make podcasts. And so that's why I decided 
to launch the company. And we're usually working with individuals and organizations who want to make their own podcast. Um, and it's it's great because you're you're seeing people who might not have liked the sound of their own voice, learning how to love their voice and knowing that there's space for their voice. And um, it's quite incredible to see how many podcasts have been created as of late and how this space has been really booming, not just on one particular platform, but really if you're looking at Apple, Spotify, Google, like wherever you're going to track numbers, you're seeing this huge growth. So it just goes to show that people are are not only liking to listen, but are wanting to put themselves out there. And I think that that is really the backbone of humanity, which was the thesis of my TED Talk. It's just that we are drawn to audio storytelling as humans, as babies, we make sounds and that's an audio story in and of itself. And so it's just something that is fundamental to how we connect as humans. Yeah, there's something about its simplicity and it's, you know, it's, it's easy to make it sound easy, but there's something about the simplicity of storytelling that makes it so compelling uh, to, to people, I think. I mean, uh, you know, simply sitting around a campfire listening to someone tell a story that's that's storytelling. That's radio, essentially. Yeah. And one of the most beautiful pieces of it that I love, too, is that without images, people are forced to dream up and paint a picture in their mind about that story they're hearing. And sometimes there's little gaps about details along the way, and then people just fill it in with, with what they think. And the example that I used in the TED Talk was, if I told you to picture a field with flowers everywhere and a beautiful sun and, you know, a warm breeze, you're going to have this picture painted in your head. But what flowers are you imagining? It, it, it could have been any flower, but you would have just picked a flower <laughs> that, that, you know, it could have been a sunflower, a rose, a daisy, whatever. Um, and that's a bit of yourself that suddenly baked into the story. And this is why it's such a personal experience. And the same audio story can have, can be a unique experience for whoever's, whoever's listening to it. Yeah, I came to face to face with that as a kid when I used to listen to American Top 40. And, you know, because people picture the voices they hear in their own way, right? So I yes. used to always picture Casey, Casey Kasem a certain way. And then I finally saw him on TV because I think he had a TV show too. And I thought, wow, that's not what I thought he would look like. And I think that <laughs> you know, if you're on TV, people always see they know who you are, right? But if you're on radio, I think people have picture what the person must look like. And that's an interesting phenomenon of it all too. And, you know, obviously we're hearing a lot more, a lot more people doing this now. So it's interesting to sort of dream up what they might look like and then see what they actually look like. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, that's also why I find radio and, and, and audio storytelling a bit of an equalizer because ultimately it doesn't matter what you look like, right? And in such, especially now an era where social media and, you know, posting selfies can be such, you know, it can really take over. We still have this medium that people are drawn to where it has actually has nothing to do with what you look like. And podcasting um, is really interesting because you also don't get view or listener counts that are publicly available. Every other social platform, you're seeing the number of likes. On YouTube, you're seeing the number of views. But podcasts, you don't know how many people have listened to that podcast. And you're you're picking something based on your own choice and not just because of the view count on it which can sway you on clicking onto a video or not so um yeah there's it's a bit of an equalizer which which i love yeah and and so 
you're positive. Your TED Talk is too that video certainly didn't kill the radio star, or at least not the <laughs> podcaster. <laughs> Exactly. And I allude to that just because, you know, I think a couple decades ago, people might have made a, you know, might have made a case for why this was either going to at least peter out or plateau. And yet here we are, it's booming with a whole new way of accessing it. So I I just think it's, um, yeah, it just goes to show it's here to stay. Well, congratulations on the TED Talk. It's a a subject close to all our hearts, as you well know. So congratulations on tackling (laughs) it in that kind of way. It's, uh, it's great. Thank you so much, Ben.